And we are live with our 210th episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. As you can see, it's just Ken and I today, but we're super excited to be here. And um, yeah, just dig into all the things today. Uh, we've uh, got a few announcements, but a few articles to actually review. Um, first things first, though, this episode is sponsored by Redpoint Security. Um, Redpoint Security specializes in code security for coders, both bolstered by experience of ah, by years of experience testing web and mobile applications, conducting secure code reviews and Web3 applications and other things. It also offers developer training to help ground your security teams and software teams in better security practices to improve CICD results, as well as overall maturity of your security program. So please check out redpointsecurity.com for more information and put your company and developer teams on a path to better security. Thanks to Redpoint for sponsoring. Um, as far as announcements go, uh, we still have slots and we would encourage you to sign up for practical secure code review at DEF CON and posting the links here um, in both channels. I know if you're following us, if you're on Slack, you have seen this link before, but we do want to make sure that it, the opportunity is there for everyone to take practical secure code review. We are looking at different avenues. Um, Ken and I have been talking about other ways that we can actually uh, train people in this practice um, and yeah, just kind of get the word out. Anyway, if you're interested, please sign up. Otherwise, you know, jump on Slack, contact Ken and I if you're looking for more private training or you know, you've got an interest in some other place that's not necessarily DEF CON or where we're currently going to offer the course. Um, yeah, Ken, uh, any other place? Like, are you are you headed out anywhere? I mean, from a conference perspective, I, the only thing that's really on my radar right now is, you know, Hacker Summer Camp, quote unquote, right? Um, so DEF CON, Black Hat, B-Sides Las Vegas. Um, I know we've got a couple other conferences that we are targeting, but you've been traveling a fair bit. Do you have other conferences that are on your radar? Yeah, I mean, there's more so uh, starting in August and then September, October, November. It's all going to be really busy time right now it's not too bad i think i signed up for only just like a, a local meetup actually OWASP nova um so yeah. as soon as we get a location lockdown for OWASP nova i will be speaking there about contextual security analysis digging into the nitty-gritty um bits of that the actual technical details um let's see i know i'm headed to austin but uh Basically, it's uh, mid-July for um, part for work, uh, not for a conference. So, uh, but it, but you know, if, if any of my friends in Austin uh, or, or folks in Austin want to meet up, let me know. Um, I'm going to be around for a few days, mid-July. I'm trying to. I, I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think. Like it's it's actually not too bad of a of a schedule right now. Yeah, but uh, I will pick yeah. up starting in August. Yeah, that, that's kind of what it feels like right now. Summer seems to, like, the we've hit early summer season. I know there's a couple of conferences that run, um, but we're past all the spring ones, right? Like, I, I did hear that RVA Sec is going on. It's been a number of years but since I've been out to that. Um, but I don't know Man, if I there's really... I last spoke there, I think, in 2017. Yeah. I think it was, like, six years ago I spoke there. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's probably the last time I was there. Right. Yeah. But it is going 13th and 14th. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Be an interesting one. Yeah. If, yeah, if somebody's down, down there, there I didn't even. Yeah. Didn't realize yeah, it's, it was going. it's not too far. It's like maybe a two hour drive from here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not too bad. Uh, yeah. It's pretty nice. It's like, it, last time it was held at a college campus. I think it's like, yeah, the um, uh, Richmond uh, campus. And uh, I think it was like um, a couple tracks. I don't think it was like, I don't think it was one track. I think it was a couple tracks, some, some, something like that. So yeah, it was good. It was good. Yeah, I'm looking at the schedule right now. Um, interesting. Like, yeah, looks like it's there's like three tracks nowadays, right? So it's grown some, you know, somewhat, right? So yeah, it's still not huge, but it could be. A, yeah, it's interesting if you're in the region. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what else is upcoming. I mean, there definitely is. Like, you know, we're talking Lascon and some of the other ones that are in October. We're definitely, you know, there's other DefCon trainings. There's other things like that that are going to be running. Um, but that's all after August, right? That's all September. That's fall time frame. It'll get busy this year, as it always does, right? Um, right. Yeah. I don't know. We had a good conversation with uh, James last week, though, right? Like starting to talk about contextual security analysis, like the stuff that you guys are doing over there. Um, but, uh, you know, realistically, we've got a few articles that we wanted to talk about today, Um was was there any follow up or anything that you had from last week before we dive into one of those? Yeah, so after the episode, because um, we had talked about, uh, so during the last podcast, we had mentioned, I think I had mentioned that, you know, one of the uh, one of the ways that people try to scale security is through training of developers, and that has, you know, the, the current the current methods have some limited efficacy and and this that and the other. Um, for a variety of reasons, but uh, after that, Pedram, I uh, hope I'm saying that right, reached out. Um, we went on a, we did actually a couple uh, meetings. Um, he was showing me SecDim, and I posted it in our random channel. If you're on our absolute AppSec Slack, you'll see. I think it was the random channel. You'll mm-hmm. see a, sort of like a, a link to it. You can sign up with GitHub or GitLab accounts. Um. In any case, why why I thought it was really unique, and there's there's like some stuff we're tossing around idea wise, um, which I'll chat with you about, Seth. Uh, but you know, maybe maybe putting on an event where we kind of run uh, a CTF um, with our listeners would be an interesting option. But here's why: so you and I built a product at a consultancy we don't talk about uh, <laughs> where. Uh, it was an online or it was an on-demand kind of training thing, right? Um, and the way it worked was we gave developers uh, vulnerable code. We gave them tutor- tutorials on vulnerability categories specific to the uh, tech stack they're working in, uh, code examples and all. We gave them a vulnerable application um, in that tech stack, and then we grade them on their fixes and the the fixes were basically unit tests, right? Um, mm-hmm. That would run, and and uh, if they fixed the issue, cool. Our test would pass, and everything's great. All right. Well, so now 
uh, he did that right in a much more very much more polished uh, fashion and, and uh, yeah super super useful got some good stuff solidity go all this stuff but uh, I thought what was really interesting and this is why like I'm bringing it up because I want to run this with our listeners the CTF is that there's this concept of you are handed uh, so to enter the CTF you first have to fix broken code insecure code mm-hmm. before you can even start attacking other users. Once you fix your, think you've fixed your code, you enter the pool and then other people are going to attack your code to see if it's still vulnerable and you're going to attack their code. You're going to have access to the source code to do reviews and all of this fun stuff and, you know, actually try out your, your exploits and all this stuff. If your exploits work, you get a, um, a fl- you know, a, a flag, it's capture the flag, right? You get a, a token value and you submit that. And, um, it's kind of cool. Like the person that's actually, and we're going to have him, I'm going to have him actually show this to folks um, when we, when we run it. But uh, yeah, anyways, it's a super cool platform. I just think it's a very interesting way to do it. And I like the idea of a CTF that's based off of both fixing and finding vulnerabilities. I think that's really, really cool. And, and it's a very necessary skill set for practitioners to have and um, seems to be, and I've talked about it before with you, with you and on the podcast that, you know, I, I, I've had people that I've interviewed in the past where they're coming in to AppSec or for an AppSec role that's not journeyman or junior or something like that. We're talking like, you know, well into it and, you know, uh, with a decent, decent salary on the line, all that stuff. And it's like complete lack of any understanding of writing or reading code. And it's like, that's not, you can't, I'd argue you can't do AppSec and not be code literate. It's just, those two don't go together. Yeah. So I like this kind of form of training where it's like, uh, not only do you have to find the issues, but you have to present at least even, even if it's not the most optimal fix, a fix that works because in real life, that's how you get things. If you're a, def- especially if you're a defender and you want your developers to like fix things, you need, you should offer them some code snippets that show like how things get fixed. So anyways, that's my whole reason for talking about this and, and, uh, bringing it up. Yeah. Well, and it's, I don't know. Like, like we, we run into this constantly, right. Is the, you know, um, the, the ability to read code, you know, specifically what you're saying, but I like, I am interested to see what SecDim has put together and how they've done, you know, how they've gamified it a bit more. Right. Like, I know that's what we always kind of struggled with is, Hey, yeah, they can come in and fix the code. They submit it up. We do our unit tests and we give them a, you know, a kudos, but the, the addition of the CTF there gets interesting because you, you can still look for exploits because I like we, we all know that there's always bypasses. There's always other ways to get around it. So um, yeah, I like the idea of, you know, actually being able to earn points by breaking fixes that you and others have put into place Um, because that's, I mean, that's exactly what we do from a testing perspective year after year when we're looking at specific, you know, at different code bases is that, um, you know, yeah, they put in fixes. We start to look at other edge cases at other endpoints, um, but we have to like analyze those fixes for appropriateness as well. And that's where the uh, these these start to fall out. So it's a good you know exercise that muscle of okay, you think you fixed it? Let's see what other edges are actually out there. Um, yeah, yeah, hundred percent, right? Yeah, totally. Because it's like that. That's the uh, that's the thing is like there is this notion for some developers of just like point me at the direction I need to make the change. And then that's, that's about where it ends for me. Right. Yeah. Um, not all, 
I mean, that'd be silly to say all, but like there's a decent chunk that are just like, just point me in the right direction, tell me exactly what to do. And it's like, all right, cool. But like, you should know your, you know your application better than I do, or at least you should. So, um, well, I don't know. That that's our that's actually debatable. Uh, that is debatable depending on uh, some considerations. But some considerations, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But in any case, for on the whole, you should understand your application as well as I do or better. And so mm -hmm. uh you have that context and so that should help inform where where other vulnerabilities that have some variance uh might might lie in your source code. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's always interesting to see that as it, you know, as it progresses along at different companies, right? Like it, the last um, few weeks, right? Like we've been, we've actually been doing an assessment with a company we've been working with for what four or five years at this point, right? Um, and I remember the first time stepping into their code base, they were fairly new to security, right? Like they hadn't ever, you know, had a pen test done before or a code review or anything like that. And finding some, you know, fairly severe, you know, injection vulnerabilities like uh, content injection and like uh, I'm trying to remember if it was XML or something else that was going on, but some RCE and just being able to basically walk through the application from an authorization authentication perspective, right? Um, and those first couple of years was rough, right? Like remember having multiple multiple rounds of trainings and discussions with the developers and blah blah blah. And now, like this last year, we you know we did an assessment, and we're getting so like it's it's almost bottom of the barrel, right? Like you know as far as like you're like you scraping know, for those little scraping those for those little, little edges technicalities yeah. and the yeah. little yeah. We're like, you know, know yeah, you could, you could go fix this, but the risk here is incredibly low, but it was in the report because we've got to have something in the report, right? Like, you know, you have fixed all the things and you're approaching security properly now and, and Hey, look, right. Like we're not able to, yeah, like, like we're not pulling data out. We can't see anybody else's info, right? Like all that kind of stuff that you kind of traditionally see. Um, it's just no longer there. And I mean, it's a credit to them that they've actually taken what we've provided and right. dropped it in. Right. Like it, you know, so it's cool to see, um, but it all goes back to, I, like we made this huge jump with them. Like, I think the first year was like dynamic only, right. Like, so kind of a, a, you know, closed box assessment, we have access, we've got a couple accounts, we're able to do all this stuff. And then the next year, because we did find so much, they actually gave us uh, access to source code and having that access and then that ability to step through, find the vulnerabilities from a source perspective, validate in a running environment. is just like it, it completely leveled them up. And then it also gave us the ability to talk directly to the developers as opposed to just like the compliance team that was, you know, sponsoring the test or whatever it was. It, it's just interesting how it how it's happened like that. You know, I know you've seen it in your career as well, like those companies that start to take it seriously and and you know integrate those changes, integrate those processes. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it makes our life harder, right? When it comes down to it, and we have to start, you know, really doing research into configurations and edge cases and everything else. But sometimes apps are just they're good, right? I, you you want to see it, but. It's yeah, it's frustrating. I don't know. That's, you know, that, you know it, it, it's always demoralizing, right? Well, yeah, we, we always go back to like, you can't take your, uh, 
you can't base your self-worth on whether or not you find a bug in an app, right? Like, but it's hard not to. It's hard not to. You, I mean, it's kind of like our, in our heads, the the thing that we're, we're there to do. I've had people, uh, yeah, I mean, I've had people take, right. Yeah. Teams take things seriously and things get, get harder. Um, but usually it's, it's kind of like, uh, man, well, there, there was, there, there were a couple times in, in, in my early consulting career, you know, working the same team as you where, um, yeah, I had to, I, cause we had like the things we had to look for. We literally like had a list of things to look for. It's like, I would, I'd have to report on some stuff that I'm like, I don't really want to report on. It's like, doesn't to me, it's not impactful to me. Um, and yeah, I, I just, I, I'll be honest. I didn't feel good about having to, to write, write up stuff. that's like, Oh, this cookie that doesn't matter. doesn't have this flag or, you know, this mm-hmm. stupid header that doesn't really do anything is not great or what, you know, I don't know, whatever it's kind of digging. I mean, that's way, way long ago. So it's hard to remember what, but it was like the, the kind of the dumb low hanging fruit stuff. Um, but, but on the flip side, for an application that's already really mature and like hardened, I think that's when you, like for me, I start to pivot into, well, how's your CSP? What, you know, what, yep. what additional things have you implemented? Like same origin kind of stuff or same, uh, same site cookies. Sorry. Some of the more modern standards are that like, are you going above and beyond now? And like, how's your, you know, pick, pick a thing like um, your MFA, how's your MFA setup look like? You know, is there, are there, do we want to go further here? Um, you know, set up, set up looking for dangerous, like certain functions that if they're, they're modified in some way, like, you know, I need to be notified about it. Um, just, I don't know, going deeper into the specifics, uh, you know, of the application, but that's coming from more of a defender perspective. Cause honestly, like as a consultant, it's like, I can look at things like the CSP and same site and all that, and I can even make recommendations, but there's a certain point at which I'm not going to go into like the daily ops hardening components. Yeah. Cause that's not my role there. Yeah. So, well, and, I mean, and, and at some point that's it, right? Like we, we, we've seen this happen in the past, right? Like, so you, you start talking about the low hanging fruit stuff that, you know, initially, you know, when we started working together, that was definitely in every single report. Like it's, oh, we'd look at all the cookie values and pull those out of the dynamic scanner and then at mod, you know, and list them, even though they didn't really matter, but it was just something that was added to every single report. Things like autocomplete equals off, right? Like, you know, that like is no longer even, uh, no one cares, right? Like, you know, it, it, it <laughs> yeah. doesn't affect the security, right? Um, that, you know, those are now like scanner findings, right? I still see stuff like that pop out of Invicti or, right, like some of the dynamic scanners that they haven't necessarily updated the rule sets to to apply to modern development, right? And, you know, there's developers behind that as well. So you understand why it's actually happening. But there's no, there's nothing more frustrating than advising a client on, Hey, I got this report from, you know, one of my customers that scanned my application and they found that we don't have X-XSS-protection header on, right? And they're making a huge stink about it. And like, 
and knowing like how these companies operate that it's just like hey we have this right to audit you because you're one of our vendors or whatever it is it's in their contracts and then you have to go fix any vulnerability that we tell you we decide is a risk right yeah. and there's no that like the discussion between you and the client is like hey here's the justification why you don't put this in place this is a deprecated header you've got csp in place that actually protects against this and uh, and we're still getting pushback from whatever large organization audit firm is is pushing into that to try and like and say hey this has got to be actually fixed um, when it doesn't actually like you end up spending developers time and frustrating them on surface level vulnerabilities that don't actually affect the overall security. And so it becomes a, a question of how do you advise clients on, you know, when they get to that maturity level of what is it that they can do to protect against future attacks instead of being reactive to current attacks, right? So you start to go into CSP and other things like that. Um, but I think we'll start to see a move away from, you know, well, we'll start to see the automation of um, like what we traditionally, you know, dynamic application assessments um, more and more. And we'll start to move as consultants into the space of the context and what's going on behind the scenes, the process, um, the stuff that can't be automated. Because we've seen that happen in the network space. We're starting to see it happen in the app space. Um, I, I'm kind of going all over the place here, but I, I like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, not not that you're all over the place or anything, but there's a few there's a few different things to like unpack there because like for me anyway. So you, you mentioned, uh, I guess, just starting with the the who whose fault is it? Is it both parties' faults? Scanners that produce results about shit we don't care about anymore. That's like older, like low hanging fruit stuff we don't even consider anymore. Um, is it or and and also not taking into account, like you said, maybe some context there, like content security policies in place, then maybe this doesn't matter, things like that. Is that the tool's fault? Or, and, or is this the analyst's fault? And in that case, it makes you wonder like, who's reporting on this? Is this just a generalist security person who has a tool at the risk? Is this a plumber who has the toolkit of an electrician? You know what I mean? Is this yeah. a, is this a, for somebody who doesn't, understand the field and the craft um what are your thoughts there and also and also the last piece of that consideration that was in my head is like are those like not the fact that they're not saying okay well you have this header but you have this you don't have this header but you have a csp in place and not doing that analysis i mean that's clearly a scanner thing but in terms of just in general reporting on low-hanging fruit um or or older rule sets that are low-hanging fruit is that is that necessary to support some sort of compliance thing? I mean, what's the root cause here? Is I guess what I'm trying to kind of aim at. Is yeah, yeah. Well, I you know it definitely is. I like obviously I've got like a, you know a specific situation in mind that I've been going that I've been living through the last few months, right? Um, and you know where it seems to come is. Uh, at least in, in the situation that I'm, you know, I'm hearkening back to, um, uh, you know, a large company that is going to a vendor 
and the large company has a security team that's probably a couple hundred people, right? So um, whatever is happening there is actually driving security at their vendors um, because the vendors, right? Like there's like three guys or three people that are actually, you know, running their security program. They've got like one CISO and then a couple other like people that have been around for a while. Um, but then there's a couple hundred developers behind the scenes and they're trying to build this product and support large companies. And it, it's, it's the a compliance thing, number one. Um, and then number two, it's this, a justification from the security team in that large organization that they are, you know, they're driving security for these vendors. And then the vendor didn't really have a program in place to respond to it. Um, and so like, you know, there's all these kind of missed signals and missed opportunities for, you know, getting in front of it and then having us come in after the fact and we start looking through the findings and realizing that, man, we're having the developers spend hours and hours on little niggly things when there's these huge, uh, not, 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 not even security bugs, but just like huge features that this client has also asked for. Um, and they're allowing their security team to drive what we're actually able to provide to them. I, yeah, I, there, there's not an easy solution to it. Like we're working through the problem, um, but I think the the number of factors that go into those sorts of decisions and those sorts of ultimatums between companies is always somewhat fascinating, right? Um, that that it does happen and that there is probably, there's not enough understanding between all of the different parties um, as to why something is there and whether or not it should be fixed. I don't know, man. It's just, it, yeah. it's all a process thing, right? Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to describe as much as I can without like. Yeah. Giving away the. Giving the away. The, spilling the yeah. beans. Yeah, exactly. So. I mean, I've been on both sides of this equation. Yeah. Um, but in the case that I gave vulnerabilities to folks, I'd like to think that. Uh, yeah. I mean, and they meant uh, one mentions. Uh, yeah. Um, well, both Larry and Juan kind of talk about, you know, uh, hinting at uh, actually confirming bones before you send it over the wire to someone to. Uh, but then, you know, of course, if you provide any vulnerability to anyone, um, they're they're going to ask for proof. Even when you send screenshots and evidence, I have been asked for further clarification, even with a well-written yeah. thing that's like, you know, I know the standard. It's well-written. Um it's yeah. So re good repro reproduction steps usually help there. Um, that's something I've, I've definitely added to my reports, but the, the fact of the matter is if you're just running a tool, you don't, you don't, you're not going to you're not, you're not showing evidence or you're not showing your evidence, real evidence that's been collected. You're just showing some scanner output and then um, yeah, forget reproduction steps. Right. So that's a, yeah. that's an unfortunate case, but I, I don't understand why it, um, I don't know, man. I just don't understand why it still happens to this day. It's like, well, most of us know at this point or savvy enough to know that there are resources out there that explain. Um, yeah, there's just resources out there. Like, why are we doing this still? I, there's enough out there. Um, yeah. Well, and I, I mean, that's it, right? Like, you know, the, the large corp that is mandating this to a vendor um, in this case, um, 
I know that there's people on that security team that understand what, what's going on, right? Um, and asking, you know, a small startup, right? Or, you know, a small team to actually justify, you know, hey, why is it that they're using, you know, yeah, specific CSP settings that are required by the SPA for them to actually work, right? Like the, the single page app, um, and then having to write up justification on it is just bizarre to me, right? Or, you know, asking for like, oh, because the scanner output this XSS protection header that it's not in place for um, an API endpoint that doesn't even like really, you know, allow for interaction outside of like API requests. I, like, I just like there, there's no like real threat processing that's going into it. It's basically, hey, I'm dumping scanner output right to a development team and then expecting them to fix everything without the nuances that an AppSec person would have actually put on to that, right? And, you know, if you've got a team that, that that is that large, I would expect there to be at least some sort of validation before you push, you know, you push those sorts of vulnerabilities out. But it, I mean, it still happens, right? Like, I'm sure they're dealing with hundreds of vendors, if not thousands of them. And so this is the easy way of just being like, oh, we can automate this, you know, this vendor, you know, application assessment process by using a tool and just making them fix everything because we're the, we're, we're the large, you know, we're the gorilla in the room, the 500 pound gorilla in the room. And if they don't want to play with us, we'll go to somebody else. Right. Um, sad to say, but that's, that's probably what is happening. So, and, and like you said, we've been on both sides, right? Like, We've been on the side of trying to get vendors to fix things, right? That early in my career is when I worked for the bank. Um, I remember doing this, right? Like, you know, finding SQL injection on, you know, random vendors forms that we're submitting data to and then pushing back really hard on us because they didn't want to fix anything. Um, and then on the flip side, like in the situation I'm in now, like I see this as well, right? Like, there's not enough data coming across to actually fix anything or they don't truly understand what the risk is. So I, at some, at some level, it's just a communication issue. Um, but it's also, it's a reality that I live in. Right. And, um, you know, I'm sure you'll get also more a lot, It's a reality. A lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's that? That's the last part you said. Oh, I'm sure you'll get back into it as well. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. That's all. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, well, classic hurt people, hurt people situation there, right? Uh, yeah. Developers can have a bad experience because of the efficient automation that is in place, and they're going to carry that with them later. Hopefully, um, it's uh, not you know, so someone can uh, do better for them in the future. I, yeah, I don't know what else to say there. That's that's a tough one, and it's a reality that a lot of people live in. So. Um, and I myself have lived in and um, although I've also had the opposite happen where vendors were like totally reporting legit severe IDOR type stuff as well. So it's I've had it both sides of that as well, where it's like, oh, man, yeah, sometimes you get low hanging fruit. Sometimes you get a vent or a customer that like kicks your ass and you're like, wow, OK, yeah, good job. Great. I wish I had yep. found that first. Thank you for reporting it um, kind of thing. Yep. So um did you want to, uh, uh, so I, I mean, I don't have like a yeah, was, smooth segue, yeah. but, uh, I don't know if you want to talk about the, um, 
EPP hacking because I thought this was just the most interesting thing. I started to post it in Absolute AppSec uh, general, but I removed it uh, quickly thereafter so that we could chat about it a little bit more. So let me post okay. it now. Yeah, um, go, the go title ahead and post is, it. Let's move over to it. Yep. Can I speak to your manager? Um, let's see here. So uh, this is... I want to give some credit here. So this uh, this work was done by Sam Curry, Brett. Oh, I'm gonna okay. I am gonna probably butcher these names, but Sam Curry, Brett Bierhaus. How would you say that uh, German, very German sounding name there, uh, <laughs> Seth? Uh, well, I'll leave that to you. And then Rees Elsmore and Shubham Shah. Uh, so, anyways, um, you have the link there. Oh, I guess Burhaus. last thing. Brett in. Yeah. How do you say it? Burhouse. Oh, you already put it in uh, here. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I, I put it in. This. It's fine. You're fine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't delete that. Okay, well, it's on there twice. All right, so let's let's get into it. All right, so uh, where to begin? Um, there's a protocol. It's called Extensible Provision Protocol. It's basically XML. So let's talk about registries real quick and registrars. Registries manage all the TL top level domains, TLDs for, for DNS, right? So you think of your, uh, .coms, your .ai, .bw, .whatever, right? Dot .whatever. There's a lot of them. Um, so registries are the ones who manage the, these, these resources. I think, uh, somewhere around 300 and something odd registry registrar registries out there. Uh, registrars are like, GoDaddy or whoever you buy, you know, I guess Namecheap, whoever you buy your DNS uh, services through. Now, for those companies, they do have to like do things, you know, with the registry. So they have to communicate that to do this pretty quickly. Um, they have to push updates, make queries, all the, all, all of this, this stuff. And they do that through EPP. So, you know, say like a GoDaddy would have an EPP server and they would uh, be connecting to or a server to communicate rather over EPP, which is essentially TLS, right? Um, and anyways, so there's this XML protocol going back and forth between the registry and the registrars. And um, with XML uh, comes some considerations. And this is actually one of the, even though this research is really awesome, there's actually a few things that I want to cherry pick out of it that are, are I think are important to, to, to cover. So um, one of the things they say, and this is, sorry, this is important. Um, when hacking any, this is them, right? When hacking any system, you cannot make assumptions on its security posture as you will risk not testing certain vulnerability classes. Coming from the web application security angle, our immediate thoughts for targeting this protocol was testing for the presence of XML external entity injection or, you know, XXE is the rest of us uh, affectionately refer to it. And I think that first point this is the first thing I wanted to chat about is like incredibly important because, oh, and you've got it up on your screen. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so why I think that's incredibly important? Well, in our course, we always talk about taking a risk-based approach. So we prioritize the riskiest of all the vulner vulnerability classes and where they might strike in an, or you know live inside of an application and then we do our testing from there but we also uh give people a, a set of checklists and then we we say you should always have your own checklist that you you go through so you have this repeatable system and i think this is a very 
these these concepts are very important is that you can't just because you're going against something and especially like this EPP situation where it's an established protocol, established servers, um, you know, widely used. You can't just, though, assume that it's fine, that it's that uh, surely it's not vulnerable to XXE. Nope. You got to go to your checklist and you still got to um, check for these types of things. And, and in this case, honestly, even taking a risk based approach would make the most sense. Right. Because it is an XML, essentially a protocol for communicating over XML. So naturally, XXE immediately does make sense. So anyways, that's the first point I want. I wanted to chat about. But let's get, I guess, back into the technical details here. So the gist is um, the, the, the EPP servers are, um, well, okay, they discovered about, I think, 50 odd servers. Um, the most prevalent, say about um, 90, I don't know, 8% it sounded like, or something like that, of those servers uh, run the C, what is it? Uh, hold on. It's C O C cocaine, coke, coke, cocaine, uh, cocaine. I don't know. I don't know. It stands for, uh, oh man, hold on. Let me see if I can get this link here. I know I'm all over the place. There's a lot here though. That's why, that's why, uh, uh let's see here. Uh, sorry. No, it's C O C C A. So that is the, uh, corporate, uh, excuse me. No, it is the, where is it? It's listed somewhere here. What it stands for. Um, why can't I find it now? Uh, dude, do you see it on their site? Um, <laughs> no, it just is C O C C A. I saw it somewhere. It stands for something. Yeah. Um, uh, anyways, whatever. It doesn't matter. Well, I'll figure that out in a, in a second, but this software is essentially like an open standard used on, like I said, about 98% of the, um, vulnerable servers that they, they, they tested for XXE issues, which is essentially them looking for, um, you know, typical XSX, XXE string looking for Etsy password. And so if yeah. it returned that, then they're like, okay, cool. Like you have an Etsy pass or excuse me, you're, you're vulnerable, whatever. And this software was running on most of those instances. They do go through a few, um, sort of other like Google's software and a few other, uh, bits of software they, they looked at, but this, this one was the primary one. Now, interestingly here, um, Somewhere in this article, they talk about that. Oh, I know why I'm not seeing it. I uh, got to go to the main page. So if you go to the main page, it's an acronym for the Council of Country Code Administrators. Um, and they mention uh, there are 308 delegated CCTLD, TLDs, uh, and their software is used to manage 54 of them. Right. So that's pretty good. It's a pretty good yeah. handful of things. Now, what, what was happening was this this uses Document Builder. Uh, you, uh, yeah, you can see it right there. You've got it up on screen. Sorry. Document Builder Factory, right? Um, now, if you're familiar with like that world, Java and Document Builder and all that, uh, there's like this, you, there's a couple ways you can do this. You could do like set feature and pass in a, a feature to disallow uh, external entities and uh, DTDs and there's, there's a there's like a couple besides set feature there's another way to do it or maybe it's still using the set feature function but it's like some kind of constants library that you can use OWASP has a cheat sheet on it if you want to check it out um but anyways they're not doing any of that right so they're just creating this they're basically they're not putting in the protections that 
uh, need to be set on the document builder factory object in order for there not to be XXE. Yep. So that's, that's one issue. There are actually more issues though, which uh, I'll get into here in a second. Um, all right. So that was uh, the, right. So then they found a local file disclosure vulnerability in that code as well. Cause remember that COCCA code, they have access to it, right? Um, it's, it's out there. It's, it's open. They actually mentioned that one of the libraries they wanted to look into or one of the systems they wanted to look into didn't actually uh, make their source code available. This is why they weren't able to do too much analysis. So, but anyways, they wanted to go a little bit further than, than the XXE and uh, they found, they started looking at the code. They found that there is a, uh, well, they did one thing that we talk about doing, which is they mapped all the inputs, right? And they looked for inputs that specific, this is my second point that I wanted to talk about is that for this next vulnerability, the file uh, file, it's they're calling it file disclosure. It's kind of like file uh, uh, file traversal, really, directory traversal kind of thing. But anyways, um, so they, the way they found this was they actually mapped out all of the routes and then looked for ones that uh, did not require authentication for these EPP servers. Yep. So when they did that, they found this forward slash cities endpoint. And when they looked at the function that processes that request for that uh, path, they, they saw immediately, well, you know, if you bring it up on the, I, I'm not like split screen. So let me see here. Do you have it? Yeah, I'm looking at it yep, yep. right there. So look at where it says string file name equals, and it takes, uh, you know, and it, it concatenates the forward slash city string and, you know, forward slash cities underscore string with uh, country, which is just coming from the parameter country. Um, and then it just, does a get resource as stream with that file name. So obviously if you do like a dot, dot like forward slash dot, dot, forward slash dot, dot, forward slash dot, dot, forward slash, all that, you can um, eventually get back to the root path and look for it, you know, whatever Etsy password, whatever you want. Um, in this case, what they used it for was initially just to prove it out was the Etsy password and that, that worked. And you can see the file, um, the local file disclosure uh, string they, they've got there on the left. Um, but what they end up doing is actually going a bit further. Uh, they work with the with a registrar who's uh, most impact impacted. They show the WhatsApp messages, um, but basically, or excuse me, not the not the I'm sorry, not the registry. The um, I think it's actually the COCCA folks, the folks that write the software that it's vulnerable to all this. Um, so they they let them know, and so they could get it patches out and all that fun stuff. Um, but, uh, what, what was the issue there? There, there was some kind of, uh, let me go back to the article here while I'm rereading that part. Um, what are your thoughts so far on what you're, what you're, what we're talking about here? It, so, it, I mean, it kind of goes back to what we like always talk about when we're doing code review stuff, right? Like, you know, the process of, you know, figuring out what an application is, what the surface looks like. They've come at it a little differently because at first they like, they saw XXE, they saw like the endpoint and, you know, started from, Hey, we're interacting from a dynamic perspective, but once they have access to the code, they kind of go back to that, that typical process that we follow as far as, Hey, what are the endpoints? What are the authorization routes or the authorization functions? Are there any of these that are actually exposed um, and then they're tracing in, like, what are the risks that are associated with this? Oh, look, they're taking input. There's got to be some sort of validation that's there. Oh, there's no validation, right? It's it, it's this 
standard process that like we've all learned over the years, if you're doing this from an assessment, pen testing, code review perspective, but they're implementing it um, in the same way that we normally do. And it's, it's not that overly surprising to me, right? The software is probably a few years old at this point, right? It's Java. Um, it's never been audited in this way. Um, and so it's going to have these sorts of issues. It's just a matter of how exposed was it? Where did it exist um, when those vulnerabilities start to pop up? And I mean, it's always easy when we're looking at code bases that they have picked out of the actual vulnerabilities to identify them. But it's a really good example of you know, where that actually happens. And then also of following the process through, right? Rather than just, hey, we found XXE, let's just move on because we found something that was very severe. You want to you identify other places that issues exist in the code. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I think, yeah. Those are kind of my initial. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a very like it's it's a, with that it's following that process without actually saying you're explicitly following that process. But it is. It's the same. Yeah, that's exactly. By the way, this is the thing I was going to mention. This is actually what I was like. Wait, what was the thing I was going to talk? So here's what I was going to talk about. See those those paths. That's where they start. Yeah. So we started with Etsy Shadow. That's that's when. And I wanted to be clear that they were working with the CEO CCA folks because they're yeah. going to still basically his credentials root creds for SSH. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so and then just validate that yeah i mean at that point you can do whatever you want another another issue they found though was a which they talked about at the very bottom was there was also this uh shell script with hard-coded credentials to upload uh copies of a database to the registries um, or excuse me, to to a box.com as a secondary backup or some sort of way that either it's a backup or it's a shadow copy or something like that of their, their the registry. Anyways, long story short, the 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 credentials are valid. They're you know what's used that you know, this to upload to something that to a location that is actually pulled by real registries. It's like basically game over at that point. That's really that's really scary. Um which brings me to another point, which is I like that they talked about the fragility of the underlying infrastructure that supports the internet uh, or how, how fragile the, 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 under, the underpinnings of the internet are. Because I don't think most, not necessarily our listeners or tech savvy folks, but I, I think, and, and maybe you tech savvy folks, but definitely you're non, you know, you're just consumers of tech, as we'll say. Uh, I don't, I don't, I doubt they have any idea how fragile all this really is. Like, I mean, it seems so like the internet's just like there and it always works and you know, all that, but it's like, no, it's, it's actually just hodgepodge of kind of universities and volunteers. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's not the most amazing thing in the world we'll say um, or stable thing in the world. Uh, so anyways, that's, that's always interesting. But the last thing that I'll say here uh, or at least for the moment is Larry mentioned uh, something that I think is a very salient point, which is um, in the case where there was XXE, they used Burp Collaborator to you know make that call out and then verify that their Burp Collaborator server did in fact see a request, and that's that's great. But you know, I think what Larry mentions is like, hey, if you were doing some proper hardening, you would be by default disabling sort of those outbound requests to that Burp Collaborator server, you'd be doing some egress filtering, right? And uh, that's that's super true. I mean, that's 100% what, what 
you know, I, I'd say at GitHub, that's what we did. Like we, we had our applications and I know we had segment on um, talking about this at one point where they were talking about how all of their containers are, are set up to go through a funnel and that funnel only allows access to very specific, you know, places. Um, it's just a common hardening pattern that people should use for this reasons like SSRF or, you know, XXE or whatever thing it's going to happen. So it's, it's best to just have, like, it's like why we have CSP. We do our best to make sure cross-site scripting vulnerabilities or content injection vulnerabilities aren't present in an application, but they're good. It's going to happen. So you got to have some kind of secondary, secondary thing to prevent against it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, we've talked about defense in depth for years. Um, and I would expect, right. Like they have a, a section on here about like digging into Google's software, like that does the same EPP stuff, right. Like and how it was protected against it and they have defensive programming and standards that were built into it. Um, which is great if you're a Google, right? Um, and right. It, like the problem that we run into specifically with the internet at large is there's software running the internet that was built in the 60s, 70s, and 80s before like the, these were all theoretical attacks, right? Like, yeah, somebody might be able to do something dangerous here, but hey, this works and it's fast and it's written in C or it's written in Java, like Java is probably the newer language on some of those um, projects. Uh, sad to say, but it's like early versions of Java as well. And it just wasn't a consideration. I mean, you know, you mentioned Dan um, Kaminsky and like his research into DNS. And that was part of the problem is that bind was written years and years ago to actually support this new, you know, fangled idea of DNS and um, became the de facto standard, and we lost Ken, right? Um, he'll be back shortly, I'm sure. Um, but it became the de facto standard because of uh, the fact that it was the only thing that was there, right? Um, it was the only thing that was available to us. And we've since done better, right? So we've got like Google building out a new you know, version of EPP. That's probably what people will migrate to. But if you're a small registry or registrar that has put something together or you're supporting a domain or sorry, not a domain, but a TLD um, for a country and there's only a couple of you, that's probably not the highest priority that's on your list, right? Like until something like this happens, it's just not going to be an issue because it works. Uh, and, and it's hard to complain against, or it's hard to argue against that when it works. There hasn't been an issue with it for the past five, 10 years. Um, are you really just going to go out and replace that? Yes, you probably should from a threat perspective, at least be thinking about it. But again, a small team, that's probably not happening. So I realistically, I see why it happens. Um, but the other call out that I found interesting here, um, you know, they, you know, they looked at Google's Nomulus, right? Their registry software that supports EPP as well. And then they also call out, right, like, oh, that could be a good re re great research target is Fred, right? Like this other software um, that supports doing similar things. Um, but I, yeah. Yeah, which is like, there's, that's basically saying there's still issues out there to be exploited and discovered to me anyways. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, uh, yep. that's what it sounds like i mean they, they just said that these things are vulnerable but then like but they only had access to you know now to be fair the, the majority of the 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 vulnerable targets were running the software that they they worked to help get pa patched but obviously there's still some 
And I mean, come on, man, if there are those types of vulnerabilities available, well, I hate to be biased, but like we talk again, we talk about this on our course is that when you start to see a pattern of things, you're like, oh, there's more there. There's a hundred percent more there. If there's two or three bad things, then there's probably 15 bad things, you know, or a hundred bad things, depending on what we're talking about. So yeah, the dominoes start to fall. That's all I'm saying. It does. Wow, cz.nick, this Fred software. What's this written in? This is just the web software on the front end. Oh, and just pirate. kudos to these folks for this research. I really love seeing this. This is one of the cooler things I've seen in a long time. It's taken good old fashioned, you know, fundamental AppSec flaws and chaining them together uh, in in this way. It's just very, very cool to see. Yeah, it is. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. The, I, I mean, that, that Fred project um, was started 2008 or older, right? Um, trying to see what it actually, like what the language underneath the hood, or it's Python, but underneath the hood, like what it's actually, but that's just the web admin portion. Anyway, now I'm going down again. rabbit holes, right? Yeah, exactly. Now I'm starting Find to go. Find you know, and stuff again. Yeah, I'm looking for side quests during the middle of the podcast, which is, you know, <laughs> always, yeah. That, that's what After that's Dark is for, right? Yeah. We've invigorated and inspired inspired you then. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, anyways, I just thought it was such a cool article and a lot of good points to to cover. Um, and I just thought it was cool research worth worth bringing up. And uh, yeah, I don't know, man. It's kind of wild. It's kind of wild to see how how vulnerable things are um, sometimes. <laughs> brittle, brittle, and vulnerable. Yep, they are. I mean, it's amazing at times that uh, actually the internet works at all, right? Like, I'm starting to think about it. <laughs> Bailing it wire and duct tape, wild. right? You know, um, but then there is like very, very well engineered software that's out there, right? That um, like has been built and even some of the, the... You're talking about PHP, right? Yeah, definitely. WordPress. Definitely. The WordPress and PHP is uh, the pinnacle of software. The pinnacle <laughs> of well-designed software and plugins. And yeah. Oh, man. One day we're going to get attacked at a conference by some PHP diehard. And this is why. Yeah, yeah exactly. This is going to happen. They're going to throw red paint on us or whatever Java's purple paint or something. Purple paint. Yeah. PHP's yeah. paint. Yeah. Or PHP, yes. I said, I said Java. See, that was a Freudian slip. I'm lumping them in together. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, I, I don't know that because we had other stuff to talk about. I don't know that we have a ton of time, but it's maybe worth me- dropping some links on the uh, threat modeling bits. I hate that we didn't get to, or we could save it for the next show. It's uh, no, let's, you. I, I mean, you know, uh, no let's, let, let's drop this one. I mean, this one was realistically uh, the one that I listed. Um, Actually, it came in, I, I think it was TLDRSEC, I'm pretty sure, um, that, uh, here, and I'll drop it into Slack as well. Um, it's a good reference of the different um, threat modeling frameworks and options that you have out there, right? And, you know, it's coming from an, you know, a, um, a, yeah, a university like research, right? They're talking through the different available methods that they've had that are out there. And actually, if you look, 
this was released in uh, December 3rd of 2018, right? A number of years ago. Um, and so it's interesting that it's just getting surfaced now because it's not, it, this is not new, but it is one of those things that um, is a good reference if you're stepping into a project or you're building out a threat modeling process with a company because it like, yes, they're flexible, but depending on the results that you want out of your threat modeling, uh, you you may change the approach, you may change the framework that you need to use. And what works for one company or one development group may not necessarily work for another one. Yes, you want to standardize across the board as much as possible. You want results that are similar coming out of, you know, the different organizations that you work with. But as a consultant, when I walk into an organization, the goals of a threat model um, are going to be different based on the responses that that organization gives me. And this is a good reference point to refer back to for the options that are out there and what it is that you can actually pick. Um, you know, one of the things that isn't in here is, is um, you know, Jeevan Singh, like the um, yeah. uh, segment guys, like what they actually did from a threat modeling perspective. I'm sure if they were to rewrite this paper now, they would reference some of that as well. Um, I don't even know if they, you know, they talk much about Showstack in there either um, and the research that he's done. And so there's, there's definitely variations that are there, but this is a good, baseline of oh look you know what does an attack tree look like what is you know what are the different ways that you can approach things the security cards examples um you know for different like you know uh, create you know running a threat modeling session and uh, you know to talk through what's actually going on but it even you know refers back to trike and octave octave um do you remember playing with those back in the day no, I, I was actually going to say, like, I think maybe I just, yeah, I, I never touched that. I'm, I'm not the world's best threat modeler either, uh, or like not the best, but like, you know, I don't know all of the standards that are out there. Um, well, actually, in fact, when I was reading through this, you know, it was like, because I figured they were talking about 12 different, maybe this is something to mention is that I thought like they were talking about 12 very unique and different types of threat modeling, but it's like, it's actually a lot of stuff is plug and play and used in uh, some of the other so like a couple of yeah. like the attack trees for instance and all that that gets rolled into some of the other uh processes that they have so it's actually some of these are just hybrids of the 12 that they're listing is all i'm trying to say which the attack tree one was interesting because i get how that i i guess it's more of a question since you and maybe the listeners have a better idea of this but is the attack tree then are you creating, so the attack tree starts with what your goal is, and then it has like different ways that you can accomplish that. And it gets a little bit more detailed from there that, that thus, you know, a Christmas tree effect or, uh, or rather a tree effect, whatever attack tree. Um, yep. but, but since some of this is, so is that, is that to basically define, okay, these then would be the risks based off of the attacks that I'm, I'm generating or is it a numerical score, like a weighted score where it's like each potentially possible? I mean, I guess I just don't, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just don't know how, how it's supposed to be used, the, how the attack trees are supposed to be used, even though there are, there's, to be fair, in that article, there is linked documentation. I just haven't had time to, to read it. I'm, I'm sure that describes <clears throat> how to better use those attack trees. Yeah, I, I mean, it. it realistically it depends on 
your process, right? The, the attack trees are fairly flexible um, uh, mechanism that you can use to, to, uh, to visualize the attacks against a system, right? And to break them down. Um, I mean, uh, in, in my experience, I've used these more as a brainstorming exercise than anything else, right? Like, so we have like, okay, there is a, you know, one specific attack that we're worried about. So the cases that they've got here is breaching the security of a repository, right? Uh, what are the different ways that an attacker can go about that? And you start to distill that down. Um, and you can, uh, you can attach weighted numbers to it as well, if that's going to help you, um, like, from a protection perspective, as you get into the threats of, okay, what are the, what are the attacks that we actually want to protect against um, because of the costs that are associated with it. Right. Um, but realistically it's a, you know, it's a visual representation of all the attacks that you consider to be valid for a specific, um, uh, for a specific data flow, for a specific uh, target. Right. That's, that's, that's how I've used them in the past. Um, yeah. Anyway. Well, that makes sense. And I mean, because if you know what attacks are, it's actually just more formal version of what we're already doing, right? Which is like, because it goes back to the Jivon's type of threat modeling, which is actually what I preferred to use at, at GitHub. I mean, we still had the, like the Stride model. And I think we, I was using like Threat Dragon. Um, and I know people, different opinions about Threat Dragon, whatever, like it, it was useful enough. Um, in any case, uh, so, so we, we would sit there, we'd build out like, oh, and, and going back to Jivon, if, if you haven't seen it and you're listening, basically Jivon takes an approach with developers, like, um, to make this more, to make it less like daunting and less formal and all that is just like, you have a house. That's something, you know, you know what your house is like and you know how much your house costs. And then what are the reasonable protections and, and what are the unreasonable protections that you want to put in place? What are you trying to actually prevent against? Are you trying to prevent against and, and what type of burglar or, uh, you know, attacker or whatever things are, what are you trying to, to actually prevent against? And like, I think it's a very uh, realistic, approachable and just common sense way of, of doing threat modeling. And that's what the attack trees feel like a, a slightly more formalized version of that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's realistically all it is, right? Um, you know, anything that helps you get get to that threat or helps you build out the model quicker is realistically what you what you're going to use, right? Um, I like I said, I found it the attack trees uh, uh, a good mechanism for sitting in a group talking about the different threats and then you know brainstorming what that actually looks like. Um, but you can, it, you know, there's so many different ways to slice it. Um, I did post a Jivon's um, training GitHub repository as well, right? Like the, you know, what he's done um, over there in case people want to look at it. And there is some discussion going on in the in Slack about it now as well. Um, yeah, Dice. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways. But take that, uh, you know, take that article with a um, grain of salt right like this is just a place a reference for you as you're building out threat a threat modeling process for you know either your org or someone else a place to you know refer back to something to have in your quiver right uh, when you start having those discussions 
Cool. Um, yeah, I think that's about it for today, Ken, unless there's something else that you want to mention before we call it. Nope. 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 This, uh, yeah, it's fun to, fun to chat, fun to catch up. Fun to yeah, talk about always securities. Is. Yeah. <laughs> always is. Uh, join the Slack channel. Um, reach out to us, uh, Seth or Ken at absoluteoptech.com. Uh, we do have swag available. We've got some t-shirts and stuff that need to go out. Um, I know we've been slacking a little bit on getting those out. Um, but uh, yeah, feel free to jump in, join the conversation. And otherwise, I think we'll, we will just see everyone next week. Yeah. Thank you to the listeners and participants and just the community that we've fostered. It's, it's yeah, it's really growing and it's uh full of some good folks. So, um, yep. Anyways. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. What thanks everybody say? for, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to Redpoint for sponsoring this episode and yeah, we will talk next week. Thanks everyone.